Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 65. We're back in 1982 after an hiatus covering the seaborne operations and an update from the SA Air Force, which had had a rather busy May, as you heard in episode 64. Things on the ground in Southwest Africa show that Swapo was almost fully recovered from the hammering they had taken during Operation Protea. Their own operation had killed three farmers and eight security force personnel around the Bomberland and the Triangle of Death. 3-2 Battalion continued to carry out a number of projects, and in particular the long-term Operation Spiderweb Hearts and Minds Initiative in the Kavango, which I spoke about last episode. A number of other ops were planned to take place back-to-back and codenamed Operation Miobos, which had actually started in March, aimed at the area around Zangongo, Humbe and Onjiba. The aim of Operation Miobos was to keep FAPLA out of the two main southern Angolan towns, Zangongo and Onjiba, which had been seized during Operation Protea in an area the Angolans called the 50 Military Region. The secondary aim was to pinpoint and destroy enemy headquarters and caches and to disrupt logistics, while there was a concerted attempt at turning the southern Angolans against their own government. Mirbos was actually conducted in two main parts. Mirbos 1 was broken into five stages. First, reconnaissance and the setup of a helicopter administration area. Second, an airborne operation by paratroopers north of the cut line. Then, a full assault, followed by mopping up, and finally, a withdrawal south of Bupa. The closest enemy brigades of the Forças Armadas Populares de Libertacao de Angola, or FAPLA, were entrenched at Kahama and Ketevi across the Kuneni River to the west, and Kubulai Techimoteti Kasinga to the north, Manong to the northeast, and Kaunda to the east of Kubanga River. Joining the Angolans were some Cubans, and it was the combined FAPLA Cuban conventional power at Kubulai and Techimoteti and Kasinga which could really interfere with Operation Mirbos. It's ironic, though, that the biggest loss in the upcoming op was actually caused by a SWAPO team armed with anti-aircraft guns, as you're going to hear. Operation Mirbos launched in full on the 13th of July and was planned to run for more than a month until 25th of August 1982. The fury of a combined counterinsurgency task force was directed at SWAPO's command and control systems around Mupa, Kuvulai and Techimoteti. If you look at the map, the target area was demarcated by following the line of the Kuvalai River northeastwards towards Ndungo to the densely covered terrain northwest of the Kalonga River and Tichimuteti. This was going to be a difficult project because Swampo and Fapla were hidden together in thick bush and they were well entrenched and camouflaged from the ground and the air. Furthermore, their positions were protected all round by defensive fire layouts and minefields. By June and a fortnight before Mirbos kicked off, the contacts and firefights were registering on a weekly basis. It was on the 25th of June that Alpha 1 Platoon of 3-2 Battalion was involved in a friendly fire incident while operating in central Angola. That's because it was where Falcon Group 3 from Alpha Company of 1 Parachute Battalion were also patrolling. A firefight broke out between these two sets of soldiers where Corporal James Conroy of 3-2 Battalion and AP Manuel of Alpha 1 were killed in the shootout. Because 3-2 was deploying in a wide-ranging area, it was a terrible but understandable incident. Both sets of highly trained troops would not have been in radio contact at that time, but the deaths were a warning to the planners to ensure operations were more effectively managed. In preparation for Operation Mirbos, two companies from 3-2 Battalion and a company from 1 Parachute Battalion were destined to operate as the main strike force under command of Colonel Jan Pietersen. 
The main tactic was to use sequential puma-borne assaults, and each would be supported by Alouette gunships. By July 1982, Swapo's central area headquarters was on the move and known to be in the area somewhere around Ivali, Mupa or Kuvalai. Orders from their main HQ at Lubango were quite clear. They had to keep moving daily to avoid the SADF and the SAF and the Rekis. Additional Swapo activities were also reported in that vast area northwest of Kuvalai towards the Kalunga River. And the man responsible for discovering the first base was Captain Willem Ratta, head of 3-2's recon team, and the SADF named the objective Smelling Rat. This enemy target lay on the southern bank of the fast-flowing Kalonga River, the same river that flows past Kasinga. The enemy base was found by Ratta on the 30th of July. It was 30 kilometres southwest of Techumutete and about 20 kilometres off the main road to Kuvalai. The indefatigable Ratta had been dropped above the cut line and walked 30 kilometres eventually finding the Swapa base near Mupa. He was wearing captured enemy boots with the soles that had been glued on back to front. Employing this sort of trick was not unusual for Rata, who'd cut his special forces' teeth fighting for the Salu scouts in the Rhodesian bushwall. Rata lurked close to the enemy base, taking notes and dispatching radio calls in short bursts via an Impala relay aircraft that was flying above 30,000 feet. The other bush telegraph, however, that kicked into gear at this point belonged to Swapo, and they were going to react shortly. Swapo's base, the one that had just been codenamed Smelling Rat, was going to be attacked by air using 85 paratroopers from Alpha Company of 1 Para Battalion. A C-160 transport plane was prepped, the paratroopers climbed aboard, and then the plane took off. But it flew back a short while later because a suitable drop zone had not been found. The Rekis eventually managed to set up a helicopter administrative area or HAA, 20 kilometers northeast of Ivali, and about the same distance away from a Swapo base, which was spotted in extremely dense bush on the banks of the Jamba River. The helicopter administrative area was 280 kilometers from the airfield at Ondangwa in southwest Africa, so the flying time was close to 55 minutes. One para-alpha company was going in for the attack after an aerial bombardment by Mirages and Canberras. The parabats were choppered in by Puma helicopters led by Captain Eric Rabi, while six Alouette gunships would keep an eye out for the fleeing enemy soldiers. But Swapo had spotted the South Africans setting up the helicopter administrative area, and on the morning of the 31st of July, they alerted Fapla, who began shelling the South Africans from west of Kubelai. The first bombardment fell around 700 metres away, and Alouette gunship pilot Captain Neil Ellis suggested moving the HAA a few kilometres east, which they did immediately. Mupa base was being watched by Rata in the meantime, and the final date for the assault was set for 2nd August 1982. Just before midday on that date, Brigadier Wittkop Badenost joined Captain Neil Ellis in the command Alouette, and they took off. Immediately as the air attack went in, the Mirages and the gunships started drawing fire from enemy 14.5mm anti-aircraft guns and RPG-7 rockets. Pumas managed to drop the first company under the command of Captain Rabi and a fierce firefight developed. The Pumas flew back to the HAA area and returned with a stick of paratroopers from the company of Major Jab Swart, but they were engaged as they hit the ground. A massive bushfire had started caused by the bombing and the tracer rounds, making it more difficult to advance, and then both sets of parabats were in danger from the blaze. Eventually, the SADF managed to prevail and overcome the Mupa base, 
and 61 Mech Commander Roland de Vries says a 3-2 battalion soldier was killed and two were wounded, but SADF records show it was a Parabat who was shot. Dozens of Swapo had died, and a large booty of weapons and ammunition were captured. Then 3-2 and the Rekis declared the area south of Kuvalai free from Fapla and Swapo after a few more days of skirmishes. On the afternoon of the 2nd of August, intelligence was received that Fapla's 11th Brigade at Kuvalai was calling for reinforcements. Vapla was going to dispatch a large logistics convoy from Techumateti that same night to replenish 11 Brigade under the cover of darkness, and 61 Mech was tasked with ambushing the convoy. But its commander realised there was no way to move his entire battalion into position quickly enough, although the Angolans were going to travel the 60 kilometres from Techumateti to Kuvulai. That was taking a big gamble. It was decided to drop one of the 61 Mech platoons in a possible ambush position on the techumateti Kuvulai gravel road, and Commander de Vries asked for the Pumas to fly one more sortie over the target area, and then for the Mirages to support his men just before first light the next day. Alpha Company Commander Captain Jan Malan was ordered to rush to the ambush location, which was around 13 kilometres north of Kuvalai. He arrived there at dusk. Malan set up his platoon in close order under huge trees alongside the road inside dense cover. They were only 25 metres from the road, Two infantry sections with RPG-7s were awaiting the convoy, along with three light machine guns laid out in an extended formation parallel to the road. The 60mm mortar section had placed their tubes close to Milan's HQ under control of the platoon sergeant. The third infantry section was deployed in a half-moon formation behind the front force to keep an eye out for Fapla should the enemy try a flanking manoeuvre during the ambush. The South Africans didn't have time to dig foxholes. They hurriedly filled sandbags with loose sand and placed these in front of them for cover against possible enemy fire. As you're going to hear, it's fortunate they did this. Then the sappers laid trip flares in the tree line alongside the road and they laid up, waiting for the follow-up convoy. They all had a fitful night, expecting the Angolans at any moment. It was only at 0530 the next day that they heard the engines of the enemy convoy approaching from the north. As Captain Milan wrote in his report later, All in the ambushing party were wide awake by now, nerves on end, excitements were stirring amongst us, adrenaline surging. Milan quickly redeployed his 3rd Infantry section to the north flank to protect the main ambush force against any counterattack. All the troops by now had packed their kit and were carrying their rucksacks on their backs. Once the contact was over, the platoon was going to head off at speed in a southeasterly direction through the bush. At about 0545, the first two enemy vehicles entered the killing zone directly in front of the South Africans, who could hear the drivers changing gears in the trucks further back as the front engines slowed, heading up a small rise. It was still dark, pre-dawn, and the trucks had their lights off when Milan gave the order to fire. Two Russian-made Ural trucks were hit with machine guns and RPG-7s, while the two Claymore mines, laid earlier, also detonated. The remains of the exploding enemy vehicles were clearly silhouetted by the blazing trip flares in the trees. Massive explosions rippled as the trucks were loaded with mortar rounds and artillery shells, throwing a huge volume of shrapnel into the bush. Miraculously, none of the South Africans were hit by this cloud of steel. The 60mm patrol mortar started firing speculatively on the enemy convoy further to the north and chaos ensued. Trucks turned around, some colliding, as Fapla soldiers tried to get out of the killing field. 
The survivors turned in an attempt to escape north back towards Tichimotiti, away from the pandemonium in front. Milan then gave the order to cease fire, and the killing group withdrew in an orderly fashion along the southeastern route. The flanking section continued firing for a few minutes, then followed. After a three-kilometer hike, the South Africans turned, doubling back on their tracks. That's an old trick, just in case Fopla was following. They weren't. Meanwhile, two mirages had taken off from Mundungwa heading towards the gravel road, along with the command alouette of Neil Ellis, flying along with Commandant Roland de Vries. They caught some of the Fapla soldiers on the ground, and de Vries said later, I momentarily felt a pang of sorrow for the hapless. It was a turkey shoot. Who was stupid enough to have given the ill-fated command to travel the road of death through the night? Two Ural trucks were left behind intact, and the SADF found tins of Norwegian tuna fish and spaghetti from Spain amongst the bits and pieces of Fapla uniform. Seven other Russian Urals were found by the platoon in the surrounding bushes, and a few that were too badly damaged to drive were destroyed by RPG-7s. Ellis and his new part-time crew member Roland de Vries flew north on the Kuvalai Road and spotted about 11 more trucks which had turned around and were heading back to the town. Alouette gunships armed with 20mm cannons sprayed these. 35 men from 61 Mech, along with help from the SA Air Force, had destroyed an entire convoy. The officers were congratulating each other when they received some bad news. Luanda's MPLA government had complained to the United Nations that the SADF had invaded their country, and the political leadership in Pretoria was now under pressure. Foreign Minister Pick Boerter was actually in Washington at that time, and a slight reprimand was sent to the SADF, which of course caused some anger and more confusion. I mentioned this before, but the fighting inside Angola was confusing for the South African troop. They were highly trained and successfully dealing with battle, only to be told by the political leadership they were fighting too hard. They had to avoid hitting Fapla, although Swapo had taken to merging with the Angolans when the fighting started. And Swapo knew that the SADF had been ordered to avoid attacking Fapla. And yet something far more desperate awaited. On the 9th of August, the SADF was still searching for the mobile Swapo headquarters inside Angola, and 61 Mech was still east of the Kuvalai Techumoteti Road, somewhere close to the Mwe River. Captain Willem Ratta and the scouts of 3-2 Battalion were hunting the infamous Bravo Battalion of Swapo. The main enemy 61 Mech had sought and had had a few skirmishes with during Operation Daisy in November 1981. Both sides were aware of the other. It was an intense dislike, you could say. They were in the bush somewhere, but had escaped so far. Ratta now shifted his search area to the northwest of Kuvalai, and found tracks only two hours from 61 Mech's layup position. The South Africans launched an operation into the area using Puma helicopters in an attempt to flush Swapo out of their hiding place. The Alouette gunships operated as close air support once more. Eight Pumas began to fly soldiers of both 3-2 Battalion and 1 Parachute Battalion into a target zone north of the Mwe River, 15 kilometers west of the Kuvalai Techumatiti Road. What these pilots didn't know was that their route not only took them over the dry riverbed of the Mwe River, it also took them over a heavily armed Swapo anti-aircraft position. The enemy was lurking in bush near the riverbed a few kilometres from where 61 had stopped, and neither side was aware of the other at this point. The Pumas dropped the first sections and flew back to the helicopter administrative area, then returned, but made the fatal decision 
to follow the same route back along the Moy River bed. But this time Swapo was ready. Enemy anti-aircraft fire suddenly erupted from below and slammed into the second Puma, piloted by Captain John Twaddle. The Puma, broken too, pitched up then plummeted to the ground where it exploded and burst into flames. Three SA Air Force crew members and 12 paratroopers were killed. Fifteen South Africans died in that Puma, the biggest single incident death of the entire border war this far. The response from the SADF was immediate. Alouet gunships were on the scene in minutes, and a large group of Swapo were seen dancing around the Puma. Swapo's anti-aircraft guns continued to blaze away. 61 mech mobilized. They were 23 kilometers east of the crashed Puma, but they arrived in time to see the Alouettes circling. The gunships, though, were running short of fuel as 61 mech arrived, about an hour after the Puma went down. Meanwhile, Swapo's anti-aircraft guns had been withdrawn, and the first SADF soldiers on the scene found an area strewn with empty 14.5mm shell cases. The whole area was covered with the chevron boot print of Swapo. Of the enemy themselves, there was no other sign. As Roland de Vries, the commander of 61 Mech, pondered the carnage, a Rattle 90 commanded by 2nd Lieutenant de Walt Weidemann approached. He was one of the troop commanders of Captain Chris Dutoy of Charlie's squadron. Weidemann dismounted and began walking in de Vries's direction, as Captain Dutoy shouted at Weidemann to stop, the second lieutenant stepped on a landmine which blew his foot and bottom of his torso away. He lived for a few seconds, but the wounds were too extreme, and then he died. This Puma incident had now cost the SADF 16 men. A few meters away, drag marks could be seen. One of the paratroopers had apparently survived and been dragged to a tree where he had been shot through the forehead. So 61 mech began to clear away the remains of the 16 men, but they didn't have enough body bags. The Puma was called in, and eventually the bodies were flown back to Southwest Africa. A roll call later would show that Puma crewmen, Captain John Twaddle, Lieutenant Chris Peterson, and Flight Engineer Sergeant Krobis Krobelal had perished along with one para-battalion's Corporal Essuas Lombard, Lance Corporal Stephen Hall, and Rifleman Andre Volmerans, Grant Krill, Craig Moody, Andres Hermias Vanikek, Anton Kruyer, Martin LaRue, James Marshall, Alan de Klerk, Shane Patrick Mellon, and Ruffle Hilton Barrett. The Parabats were all from one parachute battalion, and on Tuesday, the 9th of August 2022, it will be 40 years to the day since they died. Most were aged 19 to 21 years old, so the oldest Parabat would now be 61. In this series, I couldn't name all those, obviously, on either side who died, the death toll, though, is in the many thousands. And this one moment, however, in the Border War series must surely symbolize the carnage. They did not go quietly into the night, but we do hope they rest in peace. We'll wrap up Operation Mirbos in episode 66 and then step back to take a broader view of what was going on around Southern Africa in late 1982. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It makes the series more visible. Or you can head off to abwarpodcast.com and email me there. Or if you're in a rush, direct message me on Twitter at Des Lathan. Until next, bus bye.